Hey, we are beginning a new series of messages, and we want to, this series of messages I want to do is around the topic of the kinds of questions or even just the amount of questions Jesus asks. Throughout the Gospels, we see Christ asking questions like crazy, like actually more than answers, he asks questions, and I don't know if you've experienced this, I have, as the Holy Spirit leads me in my life, I find that God asks me lots of questions along the way. I've noticed that for some time in my relationship with God, I find God regularly asking me questions. There was one season in the life of our community uh, many years ago where I was praying pretty much every day that our church community would become really, really good at introducing people to Christ who didn't have a relationship with Christ, that we would become really, really good. The biblical word is uh, evangelism. It actually comes from a Greek word, euangelion. It just simply means good news. That people, we'd become really good at announcing, at demonstrating, at living the good news and inviting other people into that. And up to that point, we'd see maybe a few people a year, 20 at the most, make some sort of uh, profession of faith in Christ for the first time. So I was just praying that God would allow us to, you know, uh, to see more people make that kind of a commitment. And uh, as I'm praying one morning, the question popped into my mind, and I'm pretty sure it was the Holy Spirit from past experience. The question popped into my mind was, Michael, how many do you want? That, that question actually stopped me in my tracks. And without going on that story any further, like it was really, it was several months of actually reorganizing my life and reorganizing like how we did community and the kinds of things that we were doing. And by the end of that year, we had seen, uh, I think it was 97 people that we were able to actually count that had become followers of Jesus. And over the following years, it grew up into the hundreds of people a year that would actually come to faith in Christ by being part of just checking out this community. And so I think that God loves to reorient us to challenge us to like really thoroughly like invite us to follow him through the kinds of questions that he asks. And I think God wants to do something like that in each of us uh, this summer. So that's what this series of messages uh, is about. And I long for us to get really good at hearing the questions Jesus asks of us. Not just hearing them like with our ears, but responding to Jesus' questions in ways that reorient our priorities. I want us to learn to respond to the Holy Spirit's questions in ways that uh, get us into participating in what God's doing in our midst. And I find it fascinating, as I mentioned, that we see the same thing throughout the Gospels. The Gospel that we've been studying uh, for the last, as uh, Jackson highlighted last week, he said several decades, the gospel that we've been studying for the past several months, the gospel of Mark, was the first one written down. In that gospel, we have 67, you can go through and count them, interactions Jesus has with people. 67 interactions uh, that Jesus has with specific people. And if you carefully count double questions as one, like whose face is on that coin, whose inscription is it printed with, we have 50 questions of Jesus in 67 interactions. That's a lot of questions. That's a whole different way of Jesus being Jesus. Here, here's a quote from Conrad Gempf in his book, Jesus Asked, that we were just doing uh, as a book club. If you're part of that book club, you were talking about this with me this week. Uh, and anybody can be part of it. We send out invitations periodically for that. 
Jesus was a bit different from other religious teachers, Conrad writes. Moses wanted to tell you the law of God. Prophets were always telling you what the Lord was saying, but apparently if you met Jesus on the street, he was more likely to ask you something than tell you something. Even when people asked him a question, he often replied with one of his own. Think about it for a second. Why do you think Jesus asked so many questions? I mean, here we have incarnate God, God in the flesh, the second person of the Trinity. Don't you think he probably already knows everything? Why does he ask so many questions along the way? Why, why, why does he do this? I mean, this is God. Here's how Paul talks about him in Colossians chapter 1. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, things visible, invisible, whether thrones or powers, rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This is the Christ, the Son of God, Jesus, and he asks more questions than he does give answers. Why do you think he does that? Like, what's going on with this thing if you pay attention to it? The, his questions, like, aren't necessarily telling us what to do, but they're digging at something deeper. We're going to see more detail in this whole series of messages. His questions are actually designed to poke at us a bit, to force us into getting off the fence we so often find ourselves sitting on, that fence of, I want to follow Jesus, but I want to keep my life the way I want it completely intact. I want to follow Jesus, but I want to be in control. I want to follow Jesus, but don't you dare tell me what to think or do. Like, he invites us to get off that fence, right? He actually removes the fence through his questions. They don't allow us to stay in the middle. His questions force clarity about what you and I give allegiance to. His questions get it under the surface. His questions are designed to help us pay attention to what's really going on inside of us, to where our motivations lie, to what we really have our lives aligned around. His questions are subtly working to uncover your deepest longings and to reorient those longings towards him because he's actually the best thing for us. So let me, let me show you an example. One of the first questions he asked his disciples, uh, uh, and again, Jackson highlighted this in his message last week, comes from John 1. Jesus is passing by John the Baptist, who is with a few of his disciples, and John, pointing to Jesus as he's walking by, says, there goes the Lamb of God. Simple little statement. There goes the Lamb of God. And a couple of these disciples actually then get up to follow Jesus. Look at verse 38 in John chapter 1. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? What do you want? It turns out, that's like a question he asks often. What do you want? When you, when you look at Matthew chapter 20, Jesus sees a couple blind men following him, and he turns around and says, what do you want me to do for you? Dude, they're blind. Like, I thought you were the son of God, right? Isn't that what we kind of think? I can see them thinking that. He invites them to respond to that. James and John were jostling around for a position, right? Mark chapter 10. Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? The passage we looked at last week, Jesus asked Bartimaeus. He's a blind beggar on the side of the road. Seems obvious what you want him to do. And Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? 
Listen, to be honest, we expect our leaders, we expect our teachers, we expect our experts to tell us what to do rather than ask what we want. Am I right? Doc, just tell me what to do so I don't have this pain anymore. To our therapist, just tell me what to do so I can get rid of this anxiety. Right? To our politicians, just fix this stuff and don't bug me while you're doing it. And then when they don't tell us what we want to hear, well, they're idiots. Fake news, right? I think that's exactly why Jesus asks the kind of question he does. I think this, what do you want question, is actually at the heart of everything for you and I. This is actually like right at the center. It could be the question that's underneath every single question. Can I bug you guys with a book I've been reading lately? I'm going to do it anyway, thanks. Kurt Thompson wrote a book called The Soul of Desire. It's actually like the third one of his I read lately. Uh, it's, it's Discovering the Neuroscience of Longing, Beauty, and Community. I'm going to read a quote here, and then I'm going to make a couple comments from this, and then we'll get into a passage. To consider and answer Jesus' question in John 1.38, what do you want, Kurt writes, is a life-altering practice. For it opens our minds to the reality that Jesus is keenly interested in what we want, our desire. In fact, that question lies at the center of the triune God in whose image we've been made. Here's the deal. I'm inviting us into the life-altering practice of allowing Jesus to ask you the question, what do you want? It really is a life-altering practice. It's going to bring up all sorts of things that you thought maybe were dealt with or hidden. It's like, no, they're not. In fact, God wants to bring some of the stuff to the surface that you're trying to ignore. What do you want is really, really good. It's a question that lies right at the center. Dr. Thompson goes on. Jesus' question eventually draws our attention to our deep longing to be known for the purpose of creating beauty in the world in whose very places our politics, our ethnic identities, our painful marriages, our sexual encounters, our histories of interpersonal and social abuse, where it might seem impossible to imagine that that beauty could emerge. Dr. Thompson is highlighting, as Jesus does over and over again, that we are not made just to sit on this planet and pay our bills and spend our weekends in search of some pseudo-life-changing experience. There's never been a more stunningly beautiful life than Jesus' life. And it's why it's still being talked about some 2,000 years later. We're invited into, we're invited into with God, we're created for the purpose of creating that same kind of beauty that we see in Jesus' life. And we are meant to live this beauty in all the seemingly impossible places of the world. Rather than just disengaging, rather than just fighting, rather than just cutting off relationship and ignoring one another who disagrees with us, we're actually meant to live the Jesus kind of life with one another in incredibly beautiful ways. And somehow, this what do you want question that God really cares about what you want, that he cares. This question is like right at the heart of it. It's right at the center of it. A little bit further from Dr. Thompson. You might be suspicious that desire has much good to offer us, considering how often our desire can go awry, how often we move from desiring to devouring, the very beauty for which we so hunger and thirst. Oh my gosh, 
Is that line a gut punch? How often we move from desiring to devouring the very beauty that we so hunger and thirst for? We do. We see that in us. Our desires, our wanters, if you will, are broken. We constantly find our desires aimed in harmful, in, 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 in painful directions. And so it's natural for us to distrust any of our desires, even to the point of ignoring Jesus when he asks the question, what do you want? How could what I want actually be important? How could it add anything? Dang it, Jesus, just tell me what you want, and I'll do that. Isn't that how we often feel? What do you want is the question that he asks us. Wow. How could that be helpful at all? To which I hear Jesus responding, Michael, what do you want? Listen, when we're younger in our faith, just like when we're younger in our bodies, we need somebody to tell us what's safe and unsafe to do. Right? That's hot. Don't touch that. We need that. I'm just going to touch it anyway because I want to see if you're right. And then I learn, oh, I should listen to you. You're right. That was hot. Uh, the biblical metaphor of this is when we're younger in our faith, we're like the clay that God, who is the potter, this comes from Jeremiah, is shaping. When you're younger, it's kind of like you're a slab of clay and you need to like mold it. But when Jesus shows up on the scene, he tells his disciples, I call you friends. He doesn't say, I call you clay. Unless I guess that was your name. He says, I call you friends. You're no longer servants, you're friends. We're invited as we mature into this active participation with God where our desires actually become something valuable and important. I love the way, I've quoted it many times, the way Dallas Willard writes, God wants to empower you to do what you really want to do. And he's gonna constantly mold and shape and form you through all the experiences and relationships of your life in community to become the kind of person that he can empower to do everything you actually really want to do. What do you want is a really key question in there. Okay, last little bit from Dr. Thompson. I invite you to join me and to discover and acknowledge that you are a person of deep desire, he writes. You desire to be known in the deepest recesses of your story so that you will be liberated to become an outpost of the new creation of beauty and goodness even as you create that same beauty and goodness in yourself as you practice the kingdom of God that is here and is surely coming. <laughs> this, this series of messages is an ongoing invitation to participate in God's kingdom. Every invitation that we give you in the vineyard community is an ongoing invitation to participate in God's kingdom, in the new creation. That's what we're about. Our lives together our lives in this church community, like we're meant to be together an outpost of God's kingdom, an outpost of new creation, still imperfect, always being developed under the leadership of the Holy Spirit. We're meant to be an outpost of beauty and goodness and kindness and grace and mercy and truth and justice as we practice participating with all that God's doing in our lives and in the community around us. And it starts with answering the question, what do you want? So highlighted in that question is that we are a people of desire. St. Augustine once wrote, the whole life of the good Christian is a holy longing. Think about it for a second. 
When was the last time that you thought about the things that you really long for? That you just long for? For those of you that are like a little nervous, like, I don't know if he's teaching from the Bible. I can't tell. We're going to go to Psalm 37 in a couple minutes. Just hang with me because it's all about this question. What would it be like to actually begin to get in touch with our desire? We want things as humans. You want me to teach from the Bible right now. We long for things. This yearning, this longing, this wanting, this desiring is part and parcel of what God created in us to be human. We begin at birth with desires for breath and nourishment and warmth and security. Before we are thinking creatures, we are desiring creatures. We are habit-forming creatures. We're full of desire. The problem is we don't desire like just anything. We aren't interested in stuff that's uninteresting or dull or painful. I haven't met anybody yet that just longs to get COVID. Right? We don't long for that. We don't desire to feel more shame at the end of the day. We don't desire to live unseen, meaningless lives. In fact, what we desire is a world full of goodness and beauty and biblical justice of putting the world back to right. What's really interesting is we have really vastly different ways of trying to get there. But everybody that I've met longs for that, a world that's governed by kindness and honesty. We long for deep connections with our friends, don't we? Where the, where the fabric of relationships is not easily torn. It's not like a piece of paper that we just throw away. We, we long for relationships that can withstand the rigors of real life. We want to engage in work that's meaningful, where we find ourselves growing as we work to make the world a better place. We want to enjoy our embodied presence on earth. We don't long for diseases. We don't long for psychiatric problems that plague our lives. We long for creativity an adventure that leaves us speechless, a tear in our eye. We live in Duluth, Minnesota. We want to live all four seasons to their fullness. Like, don't you feel good at the end of the winter when it finally starts getting warm and you feel, and, you, and you're like, I survived, I lived here, right? We want to be resilient enough to embrace and enjoy all the seasons with gratitude and wonder, enjoying God's provision every step of the way. Our desires run so deep within us. But let's be realistic. Those desires aren't always directed toward God, toward his goodness and beauty. They can be bent by what the Bible calls sin. Our longing for this ever-growing relationship with God, a relationship that leads to loving ourselves and loving others and loving God and his world more deeply can easily be turned into desiring stuff for its own sake. For instance, instead of experiencing joy in relationship with God and other people, we become, we begin to desire to become God and to possess others and the objects they love. Instead of loving our neighbors as we love ourselves and loving God, we end up, and using our resources to accomplish that, we end up loving our resources and then using God and using other people to accumulate more, which is why the Bible makes such a big deal about worship. I'm getting to the what do you want thing in Psalm 37 in just a second. The Bible makes a big deal about worship. When we're thinking about desire, when we're thinking about what we really want, worship is like at the heart of this. 
Over and over, we find commands in Scripture to worship. Psalm 29, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord. It's not an invitation. It's not asking. It's telling. Worship the Lord in the splendor of all of his holiness. Psalm 95, come now. Let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Or in the opposite side, Psalm 100, worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. See, the commands to worship God are actually commands to our desires to get us in right alignment with reality. We don't worship God because he's needy and his ego is slagging. We worship God because putting him at the center of our world actually makes our world work better. We're created to worship, created to desire him. If we don't worship God, we're going to divert towards something else that makes that thing our God. God knows that. And so he knows the consequences of that. That's why Psalm 115 highlights the reality that we become whatever we idolize. Worship is important. Our desires are important because you aim your desires towards the wrong thing. You're going to become that thing. You become the thing you hold in that highest place. God knows what's good for us. He points us to worship in that. The prophet Jeremiah elaborates on this when he says the children of Israel went after worthless and became worthless. Dude, when we just aim for pseudo life-changing experiences, it actually cheapens our lives. When we aim for worship of the one true God in everything we do, God builds value into our lives. Here's another way to think about it. Think about the Ten Commandments for a second, right? Here's how they begin. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Seems pretty straightforward. First command, no other gods before me. Second command, don't make any graven images. Third command, you shall not take the, Lord, uh, the name of the Lord your God in vain. And then fourth command, remember the Sabbath day. All of those commands involve our relationship with God. They don't receive a ton of attention because we break them so subtly except for the Sabbath thing and we just live in a culture that doesn't value rest at all and so we just ignore that one completely. But here's the deal. Those top four commands are the prelude to observing the bottom six. If you don't have a right relationship with God, then loving your neighbor by not lying to them, by not cheating them, by not stealing from them or coveting what they have is almost impossible. Because whatever we love becomes the priority. And if we love anything more than God, obeying his commands is completely negotiable, right? And the last command sums it all up with the word desire. Don't desire your neighbor's people or your neighbor's things. The last commandment flows right from the first one. If you want a stunningly beautiful life, if you want a healthy life full of goodness and beauty that each of us longs for, It turns out it begins with worship of the one true God. Worship actually brings alignment back into our lives. Worship is giving God what he's worth. It's our desires aimed in his direction. The songs we sing, the tithes we give are actually really good for us. They're so much better for us than kale could ever be. God loves us, and he's pointing us in the most healthy direction. And so the what do you want question from Jesus is at the heart of all this. He's offering a thorough realignment that's designed to bring ultimate health to our lives. What you and I want, what we really, really, really want, our desires 
lie right at the foundation of our very lives. So if Jesus were standing here and he asked you, what do you want? By the way, the Holy Spirit is here and he is asking you, what do you want? What do you want? Okay, I want to highlight how we pay more attention to that. Psalm 37. Do you have a Bible? Psalm 37. You can open up your device. You can open up your book. You can open up your tablet. Be like Moses. <laughs> hey, this fall, I think I'm going to do a series of messages through the book of Exodus, and I can use the tablet joke like every week. I'm so excited. <laughs> it's going to be great. <laughs> I'm not joking about that, either one. Psalm 37, starting in verse 1. Do not fret because of those who are evil, or be envious of those who do wrong. For like the grass, they will soon wither. Like green plants, they will soon die away. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will do this. He will make your righteous Reward shine like the dawn, your vindication like the noonday sun. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when people succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret, verse one, <laughs> it only leads to evil. For those who are evil will be destroyed, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. A little while and the wicked will be no more. Though you will look for them, they will not be found. But the meek will inherit the land and enjoy peace and prosperity. Let me stop right there. Do not fret. To fret in the Hebrew is to be constantly, visibly anxious. It's like a gnawing away that will not stop. It's a constant gnawing of anxiety that then causes you to burn with anger. He says, don't do that. Don't let that constant gnawing bring you to a place of burning with anger. Do not fret. When we're in the emotional state that the psalmist warns us about, we often feel like we're justified. We're burning with anger over the apparent success of the wicked. But like I said, the psalmist warns us to not go down that path. He's telling us, don't be like that. What about the people I completely disagree with? What about the folks on the other side of the aisle? Whomever you think of as evil or those who do wrong, whenever those folks seem to be winning, do not fret, the psalmist says. Do not let anxiety gnaw away at you. Do not burn with anger. Why? Because what they're doing will not last. It's not going to last. There is somebody on the throne. You and I aren't him. He actually is in control. And he says, rather than not fretting, the psalmist goes on and says, trust in the Lord and do good. To trust, to place my confidence, to rely on the one who's really in charge, Yahweh. Rather than feeding my anger, feed on the faithfulness of Yahweh. And he's using his name that he taught Moses. I am. Everything else is because of me, God is saying. I'm the one. We'll get to that more in the fall when we look at Exodus and we open up the tablets. <laughs> to make, and then he says to go on to make good, to do good, to make goodness, to make usefulness, to make friendliness, to make kindness. Those are all in this Hebrew word. To create a life of joyfulness, to become valuable, to become usable to other people in your life. Trust in the Lord. 
Put your confidence in him because of who he is, Yahweh, and make yourself valuable to the other humans. Useful. Bring joyfulness and friendliness and kindness. Because of my confidence in the Lord, I give myself to others as we work to make this world a place where all people can experience the goodness and the grace and the kindness and the mercy of God in really tangible ways. And you can move beyond trust to take delight in the Lord. To take is to reach out, to hold on to, and to delight. This is a really cool Hebrew word. It means to take your pleasure in, to refresh yourself with, to have, to make fun. It actually means to pamper yourself. Take on the pampering of the Lord. This is the Hebrew word that we might translate soul care. Biblical soul care is all about desiring God. Biblical soul care, it turns out, is all about taking pleasure in God. It's refreshing yourself by spending time engaging in God. It's about pampering yourself by investing in an interactive relationship with God. If you don't have time, uh, this is me, not the scripture. If you don't have time in the beginning of the day to just sit for even a moment and say, Holy Spirit, Would you come? I look over my calendar. I pray about my appointments. I pray about things coming up. I pay attention to what's coming up inside me, to the anxieties I feel. If you don't have time to do that at the beginning of the day, you don't have time to live your day. And I know, when you got little kids, it's a lot harder. It's still possible. It comes in little bits and pieces. But you can still do it. Moment by moment, taking time to do that. To delight. Have you noticed that you fall in love with whatever you cultivate a love relationship with? I, I, I found a new calligraphy pen online. And as I researched it, as I looked at it, it's like 75 bucks. Oh, it's a cool pen. It's handmade Italy. It's so beautiful. It's like a Ducati, only you write with it, right? If you're not a biker, don't worry about it. Um, the more I researched it, the more I was falling in love with it. I don't know if I could ever write again if I don't write with that pen. You guys aren't like that. It writes like a brush. It's so beautiful, but it's not a brush. It's steel. Handmade wood handle, and it's, oh my gosh, it's so... Listen, the more time you spend cultivating something, the more your love grows. That's exactly why, another illustration, why my neighbor's yard looks so much better than my yard. Mary is so good with her yard. She cultivates everything. I walk through my yard on my way to somewhere else. (laughs) If I want to go spend some time in a yard that makes me feel refreshed, I'm not going to sit in my yard. I'm going to go walk over to Mary's yard. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Whatever you cultivate actually grows in your life. And so the psalmist is saying, take delight, cultivate, pamper yourself, take care of yourself. Hold on to the source of pleasure and joy. And it's in the Lord. It's in Yahweh, God's personal name, not just his title, the one who is. And then it says, look at this next line, he will give you the desires of your heart. When Jesus is looking around and asking, what do you want? He's probing the desires of your heart. I hear him asking, Michael, what do you really want? What have you settled for? What are you desiring that's actually imprisoned you? What do you want? What do you really want? Have you allowed the good things I've created, the people in your life, to become the ultimate longing that you have? 
Sure, that pen is beautiful, but you have to dip it in ink every like three or four letters. How have we replaced the freedom and the health of worshiping the only true God? Have we replaced that with the bondage and the fretting and the anger of trying to be God? Just a question. Then he says, commit your way to the Lord. (laughs) Kind of a mic drop question, but a question. Commit your way to the Lord. To commit is to roll your trust onto the Lord, to journey with him, to build your life upon, to build your behavior, your habits, your way of life. And there it is again with Yahweh. Our behavior is more powerfully driven by our habits, by our embodied movements than what we think we think. The fretting and the anger, because evil people are getting their way, whoever the evil people are to you, is more driven by the habit of going down that path than it is by what you think about who God is. Roll your way onto the Lord. Roll your journey with Yahweh. Trust in him. Be confident. Rely on I love Proverbs 28, 26. It's a great refrigerator verse. Those who trust in themselves are fools, but those who walk in wisdom are kept safe. You know, the Proverbs, if you just read a a, a chapter a day, you get through all the Proverbs in a month, do that for a year, it'll change the way you think about stuff. Because you run across things like 28, 26, where it says, those who trust in themselves are fools. I don't know about you, I need reminded of that. Because I actually think I know stuff. I used to think I'm pretty good at stuff. Those who trust in themselves are fools. But those who rely on wisdom, who walk in wisdom, are actually kept safe. And we could do a whole unpacking of wisdom there. But it's actually walking in the way of God. And I love this. Near the end of this, he says, and he will do this. The promise is that Yahweh will bring to pass the new creation that he's promised. Our job is to trust. Our job is to surrender to him. And his promise is that he will make our lives, our righteous justice, shine with his kind of character. So the question we're being asked is, what do you want? That's how we're starting off this series of messages. Then we're going to get into all the other questions that Jesus asked and all the annoying ways he asked them and all the ways that he answers your question with a question because he's getting you off the fence. All right, let's have some ministry time. Let's all stand up. If you're newer to the vineyard, this is the fun part. Because this is where we invite the tangible presence of God. I know the Holy Spirit is omnipresent. He's with us all the time. This is where we invite the tangible presence of God to come and interact with us. This is where we invite... God, through the Holy Spirit, to come and personally ask each of us, what do we want? And as he does that, he challenges us. For many of us, we've been sitting on a fence far too long. We've got the marks to prove it. We want to follow Jesus, but we don't want anything to mess up what we've built. Holy Spirit, would you come? For others of us, because of difficult uh, issues in our lives, like for me, it was sexual abuse as a child. For some of us, because of difficult issues in our lives, 
We've made promises to ourselves to not engage in certain ways because we think that keeps us safe. And I feel I hear God asking you right now, what do you want? In a way that will open you up to getting, and, and you're afraid to express some of those desires because it opens you up to being hurt again. And yet, the one who actually can heal you is right there with his hand extended saying, what do you want? Come with me. I got you. I got this. What do you want? Some of us are afraid of going there because of, as I mentioned, uh, I want to keep my life. I like what I've built. I don't want God to mess it up. Some of us, it's because of past pain and fear. What's the thing that makes it hard for you to answer this question? I've talked to many moms over the years when we've pressed in. Brenda and I have met with them. We've pressed in for prayer. Somebody who is so used to giving, 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 and sacrificing. When it comes to thinking about what she wants, she says, I haven't thought about that in years. That's all right. I feel like the Holy Spirit, in a gentle, tender way, Mom, wants to ask you, what do you want? What do you want? I find Jesus asking me this question as I've studied this stuff and I lean into this and I spend time with him in the morning. I find him asking me this question every stinking day. Hey, Michael, what do you want today? It's not just a one and done thing. It's part of real relationship. It's like if you have like somebody that you, like significant other kind of person in your life that you have to talk about like where to go to dinner, where you're going to go out tonight, where you're going to go, well, whatever you want. What do you want? Ah, whatever you want. What do you want? Jesus, whatever you want. We're, we're like that with him. Holy Spirit, would you give us the grace to quit deflecting? To allow you to identify some of our desires. God, along the way, would you show us how our worship is often misplaced? Holy Spirit, would you come right now? Here's what I want to do. If God's speaking something to you about what you want, you hear that question reverberating and you're able to identify, oh man, there's something that I feel like I want to express to God. I want you, you could do that in your chair, you could do that right there. But part of being in the community is taking time to pray for one another and really love on one another. So if God's expressing something to you, would you just make your way up front? If you're on the ministry team, begin to make your way up here as well. We want to take time to pray for one another and really dive into this. I think there's some really cool stuff that God wants to do. The worship team's going to lead us in worship for a while. We just have an atmosphere in here where we can pray for one another. Would you allow yourself the space right now for just a few minutes, like five minutes, to interact with God in a really personal way? And if you're somebody who's like just stuck, you're like, oh, I just don't know. Like, I don't know. I don't even think I like this. I don't even want to do this. If you're, if you're that person, would you come up here? It'll take a little bit more courage, I know. I believe in you. You can do it. Come on up here and let somebody begin to pray for you. I'll ask God, I'll ask God 
to highlight some of the desires that maybe have been under the rug for so long, you swept them under the rug. For some of us, it's a great fear of just being disappointed. If I actually express what I want and I don't get it, I'll be so disappointed. Do you know what? God can handle and heal your disappointment. And I've discovered along the way that when he doesn't give me what I want, that I think that I want, it's because he's realigning who I am. He's making me into somebody who trusts him so that then he's totally free to give me the desires of my heart. Holy Spirit, would you come? So come on up and get some prayer. These guys will lead us in worship. Other than that, God bless you guys. Thanks for coming to the vineyard today.